Hebrews chapter 10. This is a dangerous spot for me in the book of Hebrews because I've been reading commentary after commentary and read this book of Hebrews about probably 10 times through by this point. And um, if I just get into preaching mode, we'll, we'll be here uh, till tomorrow. Um, there's so much good stuff in this book of Hebrews. And uh, last week we were in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 19 to 25. Uh, which is the beginning of a new section, really the beginning of a final section in this book, and it's specifically of application about all these ways in which Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. That's the theme of the book. Jesus is better. And we saw that the believer in Christ had been made a priest in service to God, and is therefore able to draw near with confidence to God in a way that even the Old Testament priests weren't able to do, with confidence into the holy places. The second thing they were called to do was called to hold fast the confidence of a hope in Christ, and then lastly, to, to stir one another up to love by not neglecting to meet together as some do. Not neglecting to meet as believers in Christ. Not neglecting to meet for fellowship. Not neglecting to meet for gathered worship. And so those were the three main applications that are started off uh, within Hebrews chapter 10. And so today we're going to finish Hebrews 10, uh, which will bring us uh, in two weeks' time to Hebrews 11, probably the most well-known chapter, the Great Hall of Faith. Uh, which I'm looking forward to, to do in about four parts at this point. So at this point, someone, some of you may be thinking, and you may have felt, okay, we've, we've heard about priests, we've heard about uh, sacrifices, and all of that, we've heard about this tent, we've heard about uh, sprinkling of blood. All right, how about a practical living Christian sermon? Right? You felt that, maybe? If that's you, great, because today, and I am being completely dead serious, today we're looking at the subject of apostasy again, and I can't think of a much more practical subject for the Christian, and I mean that. I, I really, really do. It's not the kind of practical message you want but it's the kind of one that God wants you to have. And that's why he put it so frequently in his Bible. A few months ago, we looked at one of the key warning passages in Hebrews, which was Hebrews chapter 6, specifically verses 4 to 8. Okay, And so I, I'm not going to recount everything, but today we come to a, a very similar text. It is a warning against apostasy, which is simply rejecting Christ. Right? That's what apostasy is, rejecting Christ. And as I did back then, I want to read again a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, great British preacher. He says this, I can definitely say, after some 35 years of pastoral experience, that there are no passages in the whole of Scripture which have more frequently troubled people and caused them soul agony than the passage in Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 8, and the corresponding passage in Hebrews 10, 26 to 29, which is what we're looking at. 
Large numbers of Christians are held in bondage by Satan owing to a misunderstanding of these particular statements. I do not say that these are the two most difficult passages in the Bible. I do not regard them as such. But I do assert that they are passages that the devil seems to use most frequently in order to distress and to trouble God's people. And so whether it made sense to you or not, I made us take the Lord's Supper before, so the gospel was front and center in our minds as we come to our text now. I read that quote from Lloyd-Jones as a reminder to be careful, and for all of us to be careful, because the purpose of this text, yes, it is to warn, but it's not ultimately to discourage and depress Christians. It's not, that's not its point. Many Christians have very tender consciences, and then they come to a passage like this, which is quite strong. It, it can throw them into a place of discourage, discouragement and agonizing about whether they have evidence of salvation, and they wonder whether they have fallen away or not. And we'll see that's not the point of this passage. The writer of Hebrews in summary warns against apostasy, calling the people to remember God's grace and then to endure by holding on to their confidence in Christ. What I want us to do is we're going to read uh, Hebrews 10, verse 26, all the way through to the end of the chapter, and we'll get into it. This is the Word of God. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The Word of God. Do you see what I mean by a very hard text? Some of these words are not easy to take. They're a warning, and they're there for a reason. I want to break down the text 
very briefly for you in, in verses 26 to 31 there's the danger of apostasy and then in verses 32 to 34 he tells them remember God's grace and then from verses uh, 35 to the end he tells them don't let go endure for the sake of the gospel he warns calls them to remember and then he calls them to endure so let's look at the, the danger of apostasy. We'll spend more time on this section. Now, perhaps if you've read through Hebrews, perhaps you heard this now, you, you hear these words, if we go on sinning deliberately, and it causes fear to come into your heart. Some of that is good, but it must be understood correctly. Perhaps you read this and say, Oh dear, I sin willfully. And you think of all the times that you sin and you realize that, you know, for the most part, you're, you're doing what you know you're not supposed to and therefore you've used your will and you've, you've willingly, deliberately sinned. And you say, oh no, have I apostatized? Am I beyond redemption now? I think Hebrews chapter 6 that we looked at before Tells us that's not the case. You do not enter, and think of the gospel here. You do not enter with confidence, which is being called, uh, which is what being, uh, we're told in Hebrews 10. He says, enter with confidence, drawing near. You don't enter with confidence because you are doing well as far as sin. You don't enter with confidence. You don't draw near boldly because you are doing well this week. That's not how it works. You draw near by the blood of Christ because of his work. Romans chapter 7, I, I strongly believe, you know, you know that text in Romans 7, I do not do what I want to do and what I don't want to do, I do that, and that, that's Paul's struggle. I believe that's referring to a Christian. I don't think the book of Romans makes sense if that is an, an unbeliever being talked about. This text, the sinning deliberately, it's not saying if you're struggling with sin or you commit the same sin multiple times that you have apostatized. That's not what it's saying. And that's, and that's good news because it says in Hebrews 5 too, it says that Jesus is able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. That's very good news for people like you and me. There's something far more serious here when it says sinning deliberately. And the passage and the, the context of it all helps us to understand. And basically every single commentator worth following agrees. Sinning deliberately is something far more serious. It means someone that has committed the sin of walking away. They have given up. They have rejected Christ. Verses 26 and verses 29 make this very clear that there is a certain kind of sin in mind. You see, there is a connection between sinning deliberately and then it says trampling underfoot the blood of Christ and trampling underfoot the Son of God. In apostasy, there is the denial that the blood of Christ has bought them for himself and so people just to do what they want. 
In apostasy, there's a walking away and rejecting the truth and walking away entirely from repentance, walking entirely away from the gospel. We see here language profaning the covenant. Right? What that means is treating it as common. Profaning the covenant. It's saying Christ has shed his blood, right? which we've just seen here in the Lord's Supper. Christ has shed his blood, and we're going to treat this as common, like it's just any other thing. That's what it means to profane the covenant. Now, it may be, and if you've seen people apostatize from the faith, and many have, it may be that someone who apostatizes is also walking in very obvious, unrepentant, visible sin. They can go together, walking away from Christ and just very visible sin. They often go together. People choose one or the other. There was a story that came out a few weeks ago that I read came out on Twitter of all places, but it started to spread. It was a past someone who'd been a pastor for twenty years or something like that. Uh, and he wrote this impassioned kind of blog post on why Christianity was a sham and he's become an atheist and um who cares? This none of this uh matters any more. And he so, of course, people were, were rushing to, um, non-Christians were rushing to, you know, congratulate him on, on sto- rejecting his Stone Age Christianity, and it's just completely stupid, and now he is enlightened, he has become an atheist, and everything is all good. And look, someone who's a Christian for 20 years has fallen away. Christianity is stupid, you should too. It came out within a few hours of that post going up and being spread everywhere, all over the internet, someone said, you've just left your wife and you've been having an affair for months. And then the post disappeared. He took it down. He'd been exposed. And so what had happened, the reason he walked away is because he wanted to continue a relationship with a woman who was not his wife. Apostasy and deliberate sin, uh, apostasy, deliberate sin, and and then living lives of, you know, very visible unrepentant sin do yes often go together. Few people do come to a place of just saying, oh, I don't believe this anymore. Let me go live a try and live a righteous life on my own. It's very rare. The apostate, we're told in verse 26, for them, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. If you've got your Bible in front of you, look at verse 18. It says, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Verse 26 says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Similar language being used here by the writer of Hebrews. But in, there's a completely different point being made. In verse 18, the point is, because of Christ's offering of himself, he is the sacrifice, and therefore there is no longer any other offering for sin that can be brought forward. That's the point there. 
There was one offering for sin, that of Jesus Christ. In verse 26, though, it's saying, to reject Christ is to reject the one sacrificed for sin and therefore be left with no sacrifice at all. Verse 18 is talking about the sacrifice, the one sacrifice, to make all sacrifices obsolete. Verse 26 is saying, if you reject that one sacrifice, you've got nothing. And so that leaves someone naked before God. And we'll get to, to that. I want to deal with a controversial aspect to this text, that uh, which is in verse 29. I want you to see that it says, the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Three things there. Do we see it? Three phrases. Are you saying that someone who apostatizes has been sanctified? That concerns a lot of people because they read that and they think sanctification automatically refers to growth in holiness. And so you're saying someone was, was, was growing in holiness as a, as a Christian and they, they were living the Christian, they were living the Christian life and God was working in them and the Holy Spirit and the Word were, were working in them and then they left it? Did they just lose that salvation? Can, can, can you do that? You've got two options with this text. Your option is either that Jesus is the one who was sanctified and set apart, or the apostate was the one who was sanctified and, and, and walked away. But we're going to look at what sanctified means in that case. I think I've very clearly argued from chapter 6 that you cannot lose a true work of God. I don't think chapter 6 will make any allowance uh, for that. So those two options. John Owen is probably the most famous person, a great scholar, um, and he says that Christ is the one who was sanctified and dedicated unto God to be an eternal high priest by the blood of the covenant which he offered to God. Right. So the argument is the high priest and under the old covenant had to offer blood on the day of atonement. And so he's saying that Christ offered his own blood and so that blood that Christ offered set him apart as Savior. Right? And there's actually biblical precedence for such a view. Jesus himself says in John 17, 19, uh, which is his, uh, his prayer to the Father, he says, For their sake I consecrate myself or sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus saying, I sanctify myself, set myself apart, so that other people, may his disciples, may be sanctified. Right? So, that's a good viewpoint. John Owen, James White, some of you love him. Lots of, lots of good scholars believe uh, that view. And I can't help but think that it's taking something taught in Scripture and then reading it into another place. 
It is taught in scripture, but I think it's reading it in. I think it makes a lot more sense to just simply say, those that are sanctified are those who have been identified, set apart with the covenant community. They've been baptized. They've heard the word. They've declared themselves to be Christians. They were part of the people of God uh, that we could see, but they remained unchanged, and therefore they walked away and rejected Christ. And I believe if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've seen someone who's done that. I think that fits what has been said in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 8, and I think grammatically it makes the most sense. Someone who's trampled underfoot the Son of God, they've profaned the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified, and they've outraged the Spirit of grace. Negative, negative, negative. One person's doing all three of those things. Don't be too tempted to see the word sanctified and believe it means fully saved as a work of God. You don't have to. It just simply means set apart and look at the context of how it's being used. Okay? If you're still, you're still with me? No? All right, we're good. All right, so the apostate has trampled underfoot the blood of God. They've profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. They've treated something so precious as common. And they've outraged the spirit of grace. As someone who's drunk the Lord's blood at his table and then walked away. If you reject the gospel, there is only judgment. And that is what we see here. There are Old Testament references now being uh, made. Do we, do we see them in verses 30 and verse 31? And these references make sense because Christ has brought about the new covenant we've told in Hebrews. Now, they should, the writer of Hebrews is showing that someone who rejected God in the Old Testament was also left without hope. And he's actually going to say that things are worse in the new covenant if you reject him. Numbers chapter 15 verses 30 describes someone who sins with a high hand. It says they simply don't care about their law-breaking, and it says they're to be cut off from any benefit of the covenant. So it's possible for someone to just be removed uh, from the people of God. But the language there says with Moses, someone would be uh, judged by, in verse 28, it says, someone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That is coming from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 to 7. And I found some of these texts to be some of the most sobering things uh, I have read in this year. Listen to these words. This is how the Old Covenant punished apostasy. It says in verse 2 of Deuteronomy 17, If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden and it is told you and you hear it, then you shall inquire diligently. Right? You should make sure that it's true. Make sure this person is actually worshipping another god. Then it says, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, 
and you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, here's our text, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. It's very intense. And what I found actually more shocking is in Deuteronomy 13, which is kind of a parallel text to them, it says, you shall not yield to the person for even a moment. And it says, if it's your wife, your brother, your sister, your own son, if they go off and worship other gods, he says, you shall put them to death and you shall not have mercy on them. Very, very strong. In the land of, of, of Israel, in the land of Canaan, under the Old Covenant, apostates were put to death. That was the charge. And so we have to ask ourselves, oh, are we far more enlightened now in Christ? In the New Covenant, we don't put them to death. We don't. We don't. But it's not a relaxing of judgment at all. Because we're told that God keeps them from the true city. God keeps them from the land of the new heavens and the new earth. And he punishes them, it says there, with the fury of fire. The writer of Hebrews is making an argument. If you think that was bad in Israel under Moses in the Old Covenant, it's even worse. How much worse to reject Christ? That's his argument here. And this is why in Matthew 18, I just want to make this as a side point, you know where that lovely text that everyone uses out of context, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am within them? And it's within the context of Matthew 18, church discipline. And it says that the church is given the keys of the kingdom and what you bind is bound in heaven, and what you loose is loosed in heaven, and therefore it's saying if someone lives in unrepentant sin, you put them out, you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, where two or three are gathered in my name, it says two or three witnesses. And so if God's people decide that someone has rejected Christ and is living in unrepentant sin, and is no longer acting as a Christian, it says they are to put them out. It's hearkening back to Moses. Says, Don't kill them. It says, hand them over to Satan, though. That's where this is coming from. And so we, we see there in these words, vengeance is mine, I shall repay. It comes from Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and, and 36, the song of Moses. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It says, God will judge them. But then it also says, the Lord will judge his people. And that is good news for you if you're a believer in Christ, because what that means, the Lord will judge his people, the, the language there is God will vindicate his people. He will judge those who have, are his enemies, but he will vindicate and protect and look after and reward those that belong to him. And so there was a continuation between old and new. 
This is such a sobering text because it says to us that we can walk away from Christ, but if you walk away from Christ, you walk straight into the hands of the living God, and it is a fearful thing to be naked without a mediator to cover your sin. You're left all alone. And therefore, let's think back to verses 19 to 25. Why draw near to the throne of grace? Why hold fast to the confession of our hope? Why stir one another up to love by not neglecting to meet together? Why have church on Sunday at all? Why hear the gospel? Why have fellowship? It says here, because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's why. It is easy in the monotony of week by week, Sunday by Sunday, day by day Christian living during the week. It is easy to forget the big picture. But we must understand something here very clearly. We're not playing church. At the end of the day, this is not for fun. This is life and death, eternal life, eternal death. That is before us. And therefore, it is important. Therefore, we must give it, give the Christian life everything we have. Having warned them against apostasy, he tells them to remember God's grace. Verse 32 to 34, these people have faced Hard times. The temptation for them to return to Judaism, to return to the sacrificial system, was huge, but wrong. It said, after you were enlightened, it's a link to, to baptism. It says, you've come to understand the gospel after you, and what Jesus Christ has done. After you will be enlightened, it said, you were publicly exposed and struggled, and you had a reproach and affliction. For a Jew, many of these people are going to be Jews, the Hebrews, for a Jew to come to Christ meant immense public shame. In Acts chapter 2, there's the sharing of possessions within one with, with it, within the church. They had all things in common. In Acts chapter 4, the same, the same thing. Paul in 2 Corinthians, and at the end of the book of Romans, he's taking up collections for the church in Jerusalem, which is predominantly Jewish. Why is he taking up collections for them? Because they're suffering poverty. Why are they suffering poverty? Yes, probably a famine, but also because if a Jew comes to Christ, in many cases back then, they were rejected from all their, from their family and from their business associations, and they suffered. It told here that these people have endured through this. They've, God has been gracious to them in, in allowing them to, to deal with an immense amount of suffering. It says you supported those who were in prison. Simply, these Christians are visiting people in prison who are probably thrown there because they profess the name of Christ. Now think about that. Who is going to visit someone in prison that is there because they're a Christian? 
The only person that's going to visit, which is what these people did, is probably another Christian. And therefore, you risk the same fate yourself. He's saying, so the writer of Hebrews is saying to them, you guys have endured. You've done, you've loved people so well. Only genuine love for, for Christ and his people allows perseverance through this shame. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9, he says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. So when you see a pastor with a private jet, something is going massively wrong. We're told here that God has been so gracious to these people in upholding them. He says they joyfully accept the plunder of their property. You see that in the text? And verse 34. How is it that you can joyfully accept the government and unbelievers coming to take your stuff because you profess the name of Christ? How do you take that joyfully? And I think it's a help, helpful understanding for us that joyful doesn't necessarily mean happy. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's possible to have tears in your eyes and yet be have joy, because joy is ultimately about trusting God during hard times. It is there and therefore that he says to them, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you have an abiding possession. You have an abiding possession that won't be taken from you because you have an imperishable inheritance, as Peter says. These people know, I have Christ, I have God, I have the promise of future salvation, I have something that moth and rust cannot break down, therefore I will endure the plundering of all my stuff. This seems a good as time as any to say this. Christians endure in this country a good level of freedom. Right? We do. There are three options. There are only three options, friends, says to me. And I, and I agree with this. There are three options for how Christians relate to society. We can either live with a level of peace towards society and be, be treated somewhat as equals People might not like what we do, but we live at peace. The second option is you can suffer like Jesus suffered. You can suffer for your faith in the public square. Or the third option is you can die. That's what Paul says, to live as Christ and to die as gain. 
You make me suffer? Great, Jesus suffered. I'm following in his footsteps. I'll accept that. You kill me? Cool, I get to be with Jesus. Even better. It's something that's built within the characteristics of the Christian faith that makes it an unshakable kingdom that does not fall apart. It actually tends to get purified by persecution and suffering. However, I don't think, and I don't take the position of some, which is that we should want and invite persecution because it will purify the church. It's not necessarily required for us to have healthy churches and, and for the gospel to go forth. And in many ways it does make things harder. And so therefore I will say, I think as Christians, in order to love our neighbors as ourselves, we should be the first people to stand up for freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Those are important things that once taken away lead to great suffering in the church. He says the plundering of your property, which entails that there's something called a property right, that you can own your property. That's one of the when that goes away, property is plundered. For however long the peace that we have in this country lasts, we should enjoy it and we should use it. And if things go the other way over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, well, we're told here what to do. Joyfully accept it, believing that we have an abiding inheritance. I'm going to close with this, this last bit. Verses 35 to 39, it says, he says, don't let go. This text only tells the people to do one thing. Right? One thing. There's one thing that they're told to do. It says, don't throw away your confidence. That's verse 35. That's the only thing they're told to actually explicitly do. He reminds them about how God's been so gracious to them even through difficult times, but he tells them to do one thing. Don't throw away your confidence. And you know what? That's kind of it. When a push comes to shove, the one thing that keeps you from apostasy is not throwing away your confidence in Christ. Don't do that. Don't do that. He says to them, endure. You need to endure. You need to seek to live according to the will of God. You need to remember God's great blessings. Endure. He gives them a quote that comes from two places. Isaiah 26.20 and then Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. And what's fascinating in this text is that he takes prophecy of a vision with the the people uh, the people of Israel and the Chaldeans coming through this judgment that will be coming and he uses it by giving it a messianic twist he makes it apply to Jesus and says that there will be divine judgment and there will be vindication of the faithful people of God and his people are ones that will not shrink back. It's saying here that the one whose faith in God will endure, the one who does not is self-sufficient, will shrink back, will walk away, and will face destruction. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, says to them, 
I am confident that you will not shrink back. That the grace of God is working amongst you and therefore you will endure. I want to say this to us all. Apostasy is a temptation that each one of you will face or has faced already. It is the most irrational, illogical thing. It joins with the voices of the Israelites in the wilderness who asked if it would be better if they would go back to Egypt and be in slavery. Instead of face hardship in the wilderness and walk towards God's promised land of milk and honey and all the blessing that he had for them. Apostasy is illogical. God gives you good things and you say, that's not good enough. I want bad stuff. That's what it does. But instead, here we see, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And as I said in the Lord's Supper, the way we do that is not by gross introspection, but ultimately by focusing on the one that we're called to have confidence and faith in. And by trusting in him and looking to what he has done, we are given the strength to endure day by day, week by week, until we've been Christians for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Or unless Christ comes back before that. Let's pray.